0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier, and I'm one of your co hosts of this channel. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining us today. As you know, each new episode of our channel engages with an author who has published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nalufar Hayeri, who is a professor of anthropology and the program chair for Islamic studies at John Hopkins University. Say What Your Longing Heart Desires, Women, Prayer, and Poetry in Iran, which is published by Stanford University Press in 2020, is a stunningly absorbing ethnography of the lived ritual realities of contemporary Iranian women. In capturing conversations that unfold during Quran and poetry classes, Hayari showcases how a group of educated, middle-class women encounter, engage, and embody the lived legacies of classical Persian poetry of Rumi, Hafez, and Saadi, and many more in their everyday lives. The place of Persian poetry, especially in the tradition of Irfan or mysticism, is central to so many features of Iranian life, be it in the curriculum of school children who learn to recite these poems when they're young, sometimes for money, um, or at family gatherings over a meal. As such, this rich and living tradition is woven into everyday aspects of many Iranians' lives challenging the easy divide of secular and sacred or public and private, as well as the religious debates that are seemingly persistent in the landscape of Iranian society. thus poetry informs other aspects of ritual life, particularly prayer or namaz, dua or supplication. In highlighting these moments of conversation with God, such as during dua, or through the use of prayers by imams, the study amplifies how prayer, and more broadly ritual, ebbs and flows through emotional and intimate moments of life while being subjected to intellectual and personal challenges, ritual life for these Iranian women is not rote or stale, but rather richly complex, deliberative, and affective. This book will be of interest to those who think and write about ritual life in Islam, ethnography, Iran, particularly Shiism and mysticism, and much more. In our conversation today, Dr. Hayeri and I spoke about some of the challenges of conducting ethnographic interviews um, in Iran, but generally some of the uh, process of doing ethnography for this project, the ways in which women engaged classical poetry and poets as interlocutors in their own lives, the ritual role of namaz, du'a, and use of prayers completed by imam from the Shi tradition, the debates about praying in Arabic and Persian, and much more. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Nalufar Hayeri about her new book, Say What Your Longing Heart Desires, Women, Prayer, and Poetry in Iran. Hi, Nalufar. Thank you so much for joining us today to speak to us about your new book, Say What Your Longing Heart Desires, Women, Prayer, and Poetry in Iran. I'm so excited to have you on our podcast and I'm excited to talk to you about this wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you, Shabana. Thanks for the invitation. Um, As you know, we have a tradition on our podcast to start our um, conversation off with a little bit more of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your own intellectual and academic journey and what led you to writing this particular book.
0: Sure. Um, I'm going to try to make it brief, uh, because it's been a long journey. I, I got my PhD in linguistics from the University of Pennsylvania, but uh, my dis- I actually gravitated towards sociolinguistics and uh, wrote my dissertation on gender and language change in Egypt. So I worked on Egypt for quite a few years. But... Um, When I became more familiar with uh, the sociolinguistic situation in Egypt, I became very curious about the implications of using classical Arabic, I mean, some modernized version of it as the national standard language. But, you know, uh, for believers uh, among Muslims, uh, including in Egypt, the classical Arabic is chiefly associated with um, Quran, the language of the Quran. And so uh, there were these projects to modernize quote-unquote classical Arabic and uh, make it into the national standard. So I went back to Egypt and then I wrote my second book on the implications of using a sacred language to uh, uh, and make it into the national standard so that that would be the language used in the media for education um, and for writing anything, uh, practically anything, but especially literature. Um, so that was my second book. And I became very um, interested in this, in the question of what language, what is the role of language in um, our relationship to our religion, to sacred texts? Um, And uh, of course, more broadly, I've always been interested in what difference language makes in anything, you know, what role does it uh, play in forming your subjectivity and so on. And so my second book was really about, uh, you know, the implications of uh, taking classical Arabic and modernizing it. And uh, in the end, I argued that classical Arabic, you know, Muslims, including Arab Muslims, are custodians of classical Arabic, but they're not the owners of classical Arabic. It's vernacular languages that we can own, but we can't own uh, languages that are in sacred texts. Um, So, uh, you know, that was... uh, uh, quite a few years of working on Egypt on various issues having to do with language, uh, religion, ideology, politics, culture, and so on. And then um, I wanted to work on Iran in part for um, practical reasons because I felt my life was getting a bit too fragmented between uh, the U.S., um, the UK where my husband was, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, Egypt where I was doing field work, but then going to Iran every summer to see my parents, my aging parents. And so I wanted to do something on Iran and uh, I began with a project uh, 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 that was about comparing notions of modesty among Iranian Muslims, Jews, and Christians, Uh, and while I was doing that project, and learning so much (laughs) about Iran that I I didn't know by talking to, especially by talking to non-Muslims, while I was doing that project, I um, had a serendipitous conversation with a relative. This is what I describe in the preface uh, to my new book. Um, so the serendipitous conversation is, was really the spark that uh, led to writing this book, and I can tell you briefly uh, what it was. Would you like me to tell you?
1: Yeah, because I do. I, I did appreciate reading this in the preface, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think you should tell us.
0: Yeah. Okay, sure. So, yeah, so I I went to visit a um, relative um, in the summer of 2008. And uh, when the call to prayer came on, she asked me to continue to watch television while she went to her room to pray to do the evening uh, namaz or in Persian salat in Arabic, the, the ritual prayer that Muslims do five times a day. And um, when she came out of the room, you know, she looked very serene, and uh, there was kind of like a halo around her almost. Uh, and she said that, um, "Oh, that was a good, good namaz," and and uh, you know, I managed to feel close to God and so on. And I was just completely puzzled by by this because I thought, well, you know. A ritual prayer is just a copy of a copy of a copy. A ritual is a ritual. You you know, uh, the performer is not the author. Um, The performer is told what to say and what to do. And the performer does that, and that's about it. Um, So what could she possibly mean that um, it went well? Uh, Could a ritual not go well? If you follow everything, how could it not go well? So um, that really was a spark uh, that so um, baffled and interested me that I kind of left um, the project I was doing on modesty, which I hope to go back to at some point, and uh, and then I started to um, you know ask her and. Uh, women uh, like her, these questions about performing the namas. And so, uh, yeah, that's how it started. Mm. Um,
1: and one of the very rich um, and exciting aspects of this book is that it's an ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your ethnographic process uh, who your interlocutors were, how doing field work in, in Iran was for you, especially as someone who um, has ties to the space. Yes. Uh, and if there were any challenges for you actually because of that?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, so um, I tell you certain aspects of the ethnographic process. Uh, for example, um, for one thing, I had to uh, do most of the field work for this book, which was done between 2008 and 2016 during summers. I didn't have much time off except one semester, which I did manage to spend uh, in Tehran doing field work. But most of this was done during summers. Um, and. Um, in some ways, you know, that had its limitations. I, I couldn't see what was happening in you know, other times of the year except that one semester. Uh, but still, you know, um, it was, it was uh, possible. And um, I uh, followed, so for example, this relative that I told you about, uh, I knew that she goes to weekly Qur'an classes and uh, various poetry classes. So, I followed her and I got to know other women in these classes where I would um, say, for example, you know, I'm very interested in learning about the experience of NAMAZ and could I talk to you? And that's how my um, network expanded. So, I would end up with talking to women who. my relative or the original people I met did not know because these classes, you know, uh, it's not the case that everyone knows everyone else necessarily in any intimate way. But, um, so I ended up with a group of women that knew each other. Some of them were kind of relatives or distant relatives. Some of them didn't know each other at all. One of the challenges was, uh, for example, which poetry classes do I go to? There were so many. Which Quran classes do I go to? Uh, you know, do I go to many? Do I just follow two uh, to get a better sense of you know what's going on? Uh, do I limit myself to this particular generation of women that I have happened to uh, meet more of? Or do I go and you know talk to uh, younger women and so on? And so in the end, I decided to stay within that generation, which is mostly women born in the 1940s. And uh, uh, that had a, a number of reasons. You know, one of them is that they were mostly retired uh, and they had a lot of time to to see me. But they also had so much to say, uh, you know, in their long uh, journey uh, being a Muslim Iranian, and uh, so you know, I ended up making those choices um, in my in my ethnography, um, and I did I decided to go to a few Quran and poetry classes, but go to them regularly rather than go to, to too many. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think the ethnographic aspect of this this book is so uh, rich, and um, it was probably one of my favorite parts, learning about the women that you were spending time with or, you know, having poetry classes or Quran classes with and hearing about their stories, mm-hmm. definitely I think, enriched the project. Uh, before we get into the book, I really, you know, I wish um, we are a podcast, and I, but I wish people could see the cover of this book, because I think it's so beautiful. Um, and also the title. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about the title, where you got say what your longing heart desires and also um, the the art that's on the cover as well. You talk about it in your introduction in terms of and I, maybe in your acknowledgement about the artist who, um, who gave that permission to use this, their art for the cover, but I think it's just such a beautiful cover. So I wonder if you could say something about it and how you decided to use this for the book.
0: Yes, sure. Absolutely. So with regard to the title, it is um, from a... Uh, line of Rumi's poem called Moses and the Shepherd. Uh, This story, Moses and the Shepherd, is probably the best known uh, Rumi story from his Masnavi. And uh, the line uh, has become a, a kind of saying that to this day people use in so many different contexts when they just want to tell someone you know don't be so formal don't fret too much don't look for what uh, others impose on you uh, in terms of rules and regulations do what your heart desires um, which is you know version in Persian. and i thought that um You know, this half line, say what your longing heart desires, in so many ways captures my ethnography and what I was finding about uh, people and their journey to to define them for themselves the kind of religiosity that they wanted. Um, Also, I use Moses and the Shepherd. I, I begin the book with Moses and the Shepherd because it's... Uh, it allows me to stage a number of very important theological debates that were going on around me while I was doing field fieldwork. Um, and it has become a part of public discourse on the true seat of piety, whether the true seat of piety is your heart or you must be visibly pious uh, To the eyes of others who are watching you. So, yeah, that's, oh yeah, and with regard to the um, cover of the book. um, Yeah, I was very lucky uh, doing a number of searches online. I came across this painting by Jason Nusheen, who is a British Iranian artist living in Connecticut. And uh, I thought, my God, this is so beautiful. But it was one woman, Um, alone, you know, sort of leaning against the wall. And I found him, got in touch with him. Stanford University Press helped me to find him. And uh, I wrote to him, and he was very generous. He said, of course, you know, he would like me to use this. And eventually I asked him if he would allow us to make a mirror image. uh, Because, you know, I talk about uh, these women that I worked with meeting each other all the time and talking to each other and having all kinds of interlocutors. So uh, he said, of course, and so we went ahead and we made it to be two women sitting across from each other, which captured my fieldwork better. Um, so, yeah, I'm very grateful to him for allowing us to do that.
1: Yeah, it's such a beautiful cover, and the more I read the book, the more the cover just became such a... That's a compelling representation of, I think, some of the main things that you were doing in the book. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad that that worked out for you as well. Um, so why don't we get into the, some of the details of the book? So before we get into some of the chapters, I wonder if you could tell us what your major, um, major intervention that you are making in the book is, the overall argument. And then perhaps Let's... we could tackle some of the, the pieces that you use to support that argument.
0: Sure. Um my main argument is that um, if we refrain from looking at the results of revolutions in either-or terms, if we refrain from saying that this revolution has, you know, been either a success or a failure, then we are open to discovering processes that were set in motion that often no one had planned. So. With regard to the Iranian Revolution as you probably know, both in the media and in academia, we always hear what an utter failure it has been. And I think that politically it has been, it has dashed many hopes um, that, you know, Iranians had for this revolution. Uh, But a lot else also happened as a result of the revolution. And the one that I try to capture in my book is this kind of um, education in mass theology that uh, basically started after the revolution, which you know nobody planned. But what I argue is that uh, after the revolution, with the establishment of an Islamic Republic, with a state that self-identified as Islamic. Uh, the result of that was that questions about Islam moved into the public sphere. Islam became a subject of wide debate and critique, and uh, in a way that it had not been before. Uh, and this in particular happened because the state quickly resorted to coercion, to force people to be visibly pious in the way they dressed, uh, you know, if they were in public institutions, they had to go to prayer halls to pray uh, at, uh, at noon. And so there was this coercion involved and, and inevitably the question became, well, uh, what kind of Islam Um, you know, we ought to strive for who says which kind of Islam, who has that authority, and in the end, you know, what is true Islam? Um, So my main argument is that this debate became quite widespread and uh, people who could historically be called the laity uh, or in Muslim societies, the avam, they started to engage in these debates uh, for a number of reasons. You know, um, the the level of literacy had increased the availability of sources, um, the internet, the fact that you could go to so many classes and learn about things. Um, So, you know, uh, there was this kind of, uh, you know, mass literacy in a way where where people started to engage in what is true Islam. And so my argument is that uh, this uh, literacy in part uh, has been achieved through the role that classical poetry has played historically in Iranian society. So I argue that certain concepts and vocabulary are taken from this poetry in order to engage in those debates, in order to argue and shape the kind of uh, religiosity that some people think is true Islam.
1: And in chapter one, you really locate the way in which this poetry is, I guess, disseminated. And one is through the education, the curriculum in Iranian schools. Yes. And it was really fascinating to kind of see how some of your interlocutors were reflecting on when they were younger and were exposed to this poetry. And that really com- like got them to think about their own relationship with God. So can you say more about how this poetry is located or placed in the education system in Iranian society?
0: Yes. Um, so, you know, there are two main ways in which uh, poetry, uh, at least when one is uh, a child or adolescent, uh, comes to, to be available, comes to be around um, in one's life. Uh, one is, as I describe in the first chapter after the introduction, um, I describe the childhood of these women when um, their parents taught them, you know, a few lines of poetry that, that they would memorize and then they would uh, get a chance to perform uh, this poetry, uh, you know, as a kind of recitation for adults and they would get a, a lot of, uh, you know, positive, um, you know, feedback. Um, and. Uh, This was very much a part of their uh, upbringing. They were encouraged in many different ways. Uh, One of them was, for example, some of the women, their parents would say, you know, for every line you (laughs) memorize, you know, I'll give you a penny or something like that. And then, then of course, they would, uh, you know, choose a very long poem to memorize. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's one. The other is that, yes, this poetry has been in textbooks of Persian literature for a very long time. I looked at the literature textbook for uh, the time these women must have been in um, secondary school in around 1959. And, uh, you know, there are quite a lot of uh, poems from the classical body of poetry and that continues to this day in fact you know if you think about it really Iranian literature without this poetry is is unimaginable because this poetry is so dominant so it has been both uh, at school and at home that you learn this poetry and you grow up with it mm-hmm. yeah
1: and I, we should also clarify to our readers who are some of these poets. So you mentioned Rumi when we were talking earlier, but there's Hafez, but there's also other poets that you introduce as embodying um, this repertoire of literature, right?
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So, for example, uh, not, not only are there, you know, is there Saadi, Rumi, Hafez, Nezami, uh, you know, many others in the, in the textbooks, but also... Um, in these poetry classes that now th- some of these women have been attending uh, for years, if not decades, in these poetry classes, they spend a period of time reading one poem and then moving on to another poem. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, when you go to Quran classes, uh, there are references to this poetry all the time. People say things like, you know, this verse reminds me of something that Sadi said, or this verse is actually Rumi's version of this verse in the Quran is such-and-such such line in such-and-such such, uh, poetry. And so that's really very interesting because in both kinds of classes, you have a reference to the other, to the adjacent world, you know.
1: Yeah. And it was just, it goes in so seamlessly towards each other, which I think you get into in chapter two, where you talk about um, everyday rituals or particularly namaz, right? So how, how did poetry then inform for some of your interlocutors, um, um, how they were thinking about this kind of prayer that they were required to do?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in a number of different ways. Um so uh, one of the main ways is actually reflected in a widespread uh, debate about the status of doing any religious act if you do not engage in that act with what is called presence of the heart Um, which is a very old uh, mystic concept, um, in part meaning sincerity, in part meaning concentration, in part meaning wishing to do this only for God and not for uh, other reasons. so what is the what how does legal validity weigh against the performance of a religious act uh, that you do with presence of the heart? so for example, um, When I talk to these women, very often they would say, you know, not only would they say something like, you know, presence of the heart is very important. When we do namaz, concentration is very important. Uh, They would say, you know, uh, I want to feel a connection to God when I pray. And when I don't manage to do that, when I cannot concentrate, when my mind wanders, That's not a good namaz. Uh, And they would talk about how they would stop praying sometimes. They would just take a break because their mind would keep wandering. And then they would go back to praying when they thought that they could concentrate. But when you talk to, uh, you know, clerics, uh, I I interviewed a number of clerics who would say, you know, very um, (laughs) without hesitation, they would say... You know, the laity, you know, ordinary people, they don't need to uh, make a connection or have necessarily, you know, presence of the heart so much when they do the namaz. You know, as long as they say the intention uh, formula and they say the surahs correctly and so on, you know, that's fine. That prayer is accepted, kabul, you know, it's, it's, um, it's legally valid. They've done what they are supposed to do. You know, it's called eskata taklif. You just get done what is the obligation. You you do it. Um, But these women disagreed that, uh, you know, uh, legal validity is um, just all there is to praying. Uh, They wanted to learn to concentrate better, they would develop techniques of concentration, Um, and uh, I think part of the way in which classical poetry uh, is present in the ways in which these women think about uh, namaz is precisely that idea of wishing to Uh, have presence of the heart, and be co-present with the divine in the sacred time-space of the namaz. That for them is a good namaz, is one where they haven't done it simply to get it out of the way.
1: And it was also fascinating to read how some women, some of your interlocutors um, actively stopped praying because, you know, there was an issue or there was something that was happening in life that caused them to be in a state maybe of disappointment or our anger with God, right? And so there was a lot of agency, even in the act of stopping to pray, saying that this is not something that's working, and then picking it up later, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. That was one of the um, moments where I I was quite, uh, you know, in a way, startled, because it was not quite, um, I didn't quite expect that. But, you know, I discovered that uh, one's relationship with God goes through ups and downs, pretty much like many other relationships. It doesn't remain just one thing. And so, for example, sometimes, uh, you know, when I ask these women, for example, to tell me what it's like to do du'a, which is a prayer, uh, you know, a, com- a spontaneous conversation with God, where which is what in Islam is called mustahab, meaning it's not legally required of you. There is no uh, punishment, for example, if you don't do it. But of course, everyone does dua. They spontaneously talk to God, you know, when the, whenever they want. And so when I would ask them, you know, t- tell me what what is it like to do dua, quite a lot of the examples that I received were of moments where they were angry at God because things had happened in their lives that they couldn't understand. They thought that it was just too much, too many things were, were happening that they couldn't handle. And so in their prayer, they would actually, you know, shout at God and scold him and ask him to account for himself. Why are you doing this to me? Um, and um, yeah, so, so this, this was, uh, I mean, some of these narratives, that I have in my book are actually a little bit too emotional. <laughs> Otherwise, I would, I would share some with you. But yeah, they, they would um, ask God, why you're doing this? And I think in my book, what I argue is that, again, uh, this is in part a result of the fact that for centuries, within mystic poetry, God has been referred to as the beloved. And if God is the beloved, you can ask the beloved, you know, what's going on? Why are you Why are you doing this to me? Uh, you can become intimate with God.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what was interesting to see kind of the contrast between the chapter on namaz and then the chapter on du'a and the spontaneous conversation. I, I have to say one of the most interesting chapters for me, at least, when I was reading the book was chapter 4, um, which you've titled movable mosques. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, but really, this chapter is about um, prayers that are by the imams, right yes. in the Iranian context. and um, uh, and so I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, you know the material culture, like the prayer books that mm-hmm. you describe and why you refer to them as prayer books, and in what context maybe that these prayers are being um, said in addition to namaz and to du'a?
0: Right. Um, So, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, just as with poetry, where we don't really have uh, a social history of uh, classical poetry in Iran for any given period, I mean, of course, we do have Uh, you know, uh, uh, articles uh, here and there, but we don't really have a systematic uh, study of the social life of, uh, the social history of mm, classical poetry in Iran. We also don't have that, uh, except in bits and pieces here and there um, on this social history of prayer books in Iran. Uh, There are so many questions that I confronted when I, uh, wanted to to look at prayer books. I mean, even very simple uh, questions, like for example, prayer books uh, have covers that are similar to covers of the of Qurans. And and the question is, you know, was this ever controversial? Uh, you know, how did publishers manage to um, make prayer books look sacred, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you know, one one expects that kind of design to be uh, reserved only for the Quran. So anyway, I mean, just to say that there are all, all kinds of questions one can't answer. But in any case, I try to I look at two main prayer books in Iran. You know, one is Sayf-e uh, and the other is Mafatih um, al-Janan, and uh, you know, Saifei Sajjad Yeh was written by Imam Sajjad, you know, um, uh, in the 7th century. And uh, it's full of uh, praise, poet, praise prayers, gratitude, and so on. Whereas, Mafatih al-Janan, which came out in early 20th century, not only has a collection of prayers that are claimed to have been composed by imams. But it also, as a book, tells you what acts to do on any given day. You know, on Friday, do this. Uh, When you have a headache, do that. Uh, When you make a vow, you know, invite this many people and do that kind of thing. So I look at the the respective histories of both of these. Uh, And what I was interested in was, on the one hand, whether the uh, Ayatollahs had come up with sort of updated versions of these books, and, in fact, they have. So there seems to be a certain competition between Ayatollahs coming up with prayer books that are updated. They keep using that word, you know, Mm -hmm. their language is updated, their concepts are updated. Um, What was fascinating about the newer prayer books by uh, contemporary ayatollahs uh, is that um, they try to address a more educated middle-class audience. Uh, That's reflected both in the content of the book and also in the fact that these books are really quite expensive. I can't imagine uh, ordinary people being able to uh, buy those books. But more fascinating than that for me was the fact that a number of books had come out which were categorized under simple Erfan, simple mysticism, um, that were written by the younger generation, not clerical people. And especially younger women have been very successful in writing. Uh, For example, one book that became very famous is called Tea with a Taste of God, uh, which is written by a young woman who got her PhD in philosophy and her name is Irfan uh, Nazar Ahari. And uh, she wrote this book in Persian, so here is a uh, prayer, quote-unquote, that is not in Arabic, it's in Persian. And it's in this genre of what is called simple irfan, a uh, simple mysticism, uh, receiving all kinds of awards. And what's interesting is that when you go to bookstores that are religious bookstores, these kinds of books are actually in the section on dua. They are in the section. So these women and the younger generation have helped expand the idea of what is a prayer.
1: That's so fascinating. I think this chapter was really illuminating in that sense. And you also tackle in this chapter, and now thinking about what you said uh, in your introduction of your own interests in linguistics, this kind of question of Arabic and Persian and this question of authenticity of like, if one must pray in Arabic or if praying in Persian is also count, especially if you're praying in Arabic, but you don't really understand what you're saying. Is that still a real prayer or authentic prayer? Right. And you really bring this out in this particular chapter as well.
0: Yes, I mean, with my background, having worked on Arabic and being always very sensitive to the ways in which Persian and Arabic coexist um, in the uh, space of religiosity, I was fascinated by the fact that, for example, let's say one of the women was telling me that she does this kind of ziksh, um which is a kind of doa, it's a remembrance of God and you know 19 times she says um, in arabic bismillah rahman rahim you know in the name of god the compassionate the merciful and um i asked her uh, well you know would you say could you say the same thing in persian 19 times and she just completely cracked up you know <laughs> uh, to say that in persian it it's 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 almost it's it's just comical persian doesn't have that kind of uh, mysterious efficacy uh, to um to be used for this kind of dua, where you say something say thirty times or nineteen times. and there is in fact uh, uh, this concept uh, at least in uh, Shia Islam, called Fazilat, which you can you know uh, translate into virtue, meaning that certain prayers said on certain occasions have this kind of virtue, this kind of um, special efficacy for your purposes. And so uh, I talked to Ayatollah Khadivar, who is now in the U.S., uh, well, you know, why? why can't these prayers said in Persian have this kind of fazilat, this kind of virtue. I mean, he agreed with me that uh, they should if you truly believe in what you are saying and your intentions are good. But uh, Kadivar is an exception. Most ayatollahs, uh, you can see on their websites because people write To them about these things. You know, can I say this in Persian? Can I say this in Arabic? Why do I have to say this in Arabic? And they always say, for matters of caution, you ought to say all of this in Arabic first, and then if you want to, you can say it in Persian. So saying things in Arabic counts as actually performing a religious act, whereas saying them in Persian is not. Although this is now Uh, debated. There are women that I, among the women that I interviewed, there are those who don't agree with this at all. One of them says that uh, sometimes she says her namaz in Persian, sometimes she says it in a combination of Arabic and Persian, but on the whole, still there is this idea that Arabic is the language of religion, and if you want your prayer to be efficacious and to have fazilat, you ought to say it in Arabic. Mm,
1: Which is really fascinating, I think, um, as a point to end off in, in Chapter 4. Um, I know before we started talking, you said that there was maybe some sections of the book that you wanted to, short sections that you wanted to maybe read to, get, um, to give our sense uh our listeners, a sense of the book, especially voices of your interlocutors, or some poetry. Did you still want to do that before we go on to some concluding questions? Yes. Or?
0: Yes. Sure. I would like to. I, I'd like to read two brief uh, narratives that I was um, given by by two of the women. Uh, the reason I want to share them is because one of the questions I address in uh, my book in chapter one which is called Where Do Ideas Come From? Uh, the question is, what is this poetry doing uh, for people? Uh, you know, And one thing I show is that uh, it affects and inflects relationships. So here is a woman uh, who I call Maryam in my book. Um, we were basically sitting around the table with, you know, seven or eight people and talking about poetry, and uh, she uh, told us this story. She said, my parents liked each other, but had very different personalities. And I could see that at times, my father's being so disengaged from our daily lives made my mother lose her patience. But quite often around the dinner table or after dinner, for one reason or another, one of them would recite a line and others would follow, either reciting the rest of that very poem or reciting poems that had relevant themes. My father, who had hundreds of memorized verses up his sleeve, would keep coming back with his own poems, some of which he recited with a particular melody. My mother would join in. She would recite her favorite poems, often correct my father and others, and suddenly you could see that the expression on her her face had completely changed. She had softened, had a lovely smile, and looked at my father with gentle admiration. So, yeah, so you see, what I conclude from this is that it transforms relationships. Um, And then there is another one which is funnier. (laughs) that I want to read to you. It's um, from another um, woman, actually in the same session. Her name, uh, I call her Mina, and she gives an example of her daughter's 82-year-old father-in-law, who she says has a poem for all occasions. Um, And so she tells this story of um, when he goes to a, a certain, you know, bureaucracy, but he gets stuck there, he, and the man who is there is not helping him. Uh, so here's what she said. She says, uh, my father-in-law said recently, this one poem saved me. It was from Parvin Etesami. Parvin Etesami is a poet, a female poet that I write about in my book, who was a, a huge favorite of these women uh, who lived in early 20th century. So... He says it was from Parveen Etesami. He was being given a hard time by some office manager and he recited a poem for him that was relevant to how he was being treated. He said that the guy at the office was rather boastful and he tried to answer with another poem. I said, I'm sorry, but you're mistaken. You're not reading it right. And at this point, everyone around our table laughed. The man took umbrage, but I began to recite his poem myself and people gathered around us. So he paused, but in the end he relented and solved my problem.
1: <laughs> I remember reading that passage and also laughing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, so yeah, these are the these are the kinds of things poetry does, you know, it inflects relationships, it opens knots, as they say in Persian. Um, it softens people. It um, mediates, uh, you know, intimacy, uh, experiences of, you know, aesthetic experiences, and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was, you know, I my own interest in scholarship looked a lot at. Um, Sufi poetry in the context of um, the West and how it's been popularized and commodified, especially figures like Rumi and Hafaz, and you kind of see it all over social media and the internet. And there's misquotes and things like that. So reading your book was also fascinating for me in that regard, because it really gave kind of a context in which a lot of these poetries are lived legacies in Iran, right? Yes. And how they're embodied by women, um, in the you know, your interlocutors, women who embody them and they struggle with it and they carry it in their hearts. And I think that was really a profound affective reality of these poems that we often don't get exposed to when they're kind of on social media or people are reciting them or you know, there's a different reality of commodification in the global West, quote-unquote, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the thing is, it's quite different because, you see, there are a number of reasons, of course, why this is different in Iran. Um, uh, you know, for one thing, uh, this poetry is looked at as a source of inexhaustible wisdom, inexhaustible knowledge. And so these poets have been interlocutors for people for for centuries, Um, and uh, they are finding a particularly, you know, they're they're, they're particularly relevant within the debates on true Islam after the revolution. Um, The other thing is that, you know, this poetry in Iran is shared congregationally, uh, as I say in my book. It's not, you know, you don't go to your room all alone and silently read Hafez. Of course, you, you do that and you can do that. But most of the time, they are a part of gatherings. Uh, It's it's a very usual happening that in a gathering, you know, uh, after dinner or at some point, someone pulls out their hafez or molavi or, you know, nezami and shares a poem, and then someone else uh, takes the book and shares another one, and so on. So, um, they, these poets are really important interlocutors, and they what they have to say is found to be relevant both to personal experiences uh, and also to what is happening in the, in the broader society. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think framing the poet like Rumi Hafaz Saadi as interlocutors, I think it's a powerful way to think about what is happening in this book for um, the woman that you engage with. Um, Now, I wonder if you could take a step back and kind of look at the bigger picture and really go back to this question that you started your book with in terms of, you know, what do we mean when we say someone is religious and what does that mean in the context of Iran? What would you want um, uh, the readers of the book to really take away as as an important point of the book?
0: right. Uh, Thank you for that question. Um, I think what I would like readers uh, to take away is to not assume that they know the answer to the question of what it means for someone to be religious. Um, I think that I personally, for quite some time, didn't even think about the question, Uh, you know, regardless of the answer I would have given. So um, it's important to actually reflect on it, to think about it, but also and not to assume that people who are religious are somehow, uh, somehow lack critical faculties. Uh, it's only, you know, uh, secular uh, thinking and secular approaches to the world where, uh, you know, critical, Uh, faculties are engaged. I found uh, that I learned a great deal from the women that I talked to precisely because they struggled uh, very honestly and openly with questions of what it means to engage with uh, some reality called the divine, um, to be a good Muslim. For example, you know, it comes up very often where they say, you know, I don't think people should pray if they can't uh, be honest. You know, what good is it to pray if you, if you cheat and lie? Uh, which, you know, uh, is, is a very relevant kind of question um, these days in Iran. Um, so for, let me give you one very specific example where um, uh, people think that a ritual... Because it's repeated, and because the performer is not the author, it is inevitably a ritual becomes rote and mindless. And I argue at length in my book against that. And and so what I'd like to do is to give a few reasons why I argue against this. So as you know, uh, within the larger society uh, in this country, at least in the U.S., um, And also, I would say, within the social sciences, there is the idea that, uh, you know, the repetition that occurs within rituals inevitably makes the language meaningless and rote. Because how is it that you could say something uh, every day, five times a day, all your life, and for it not to become mindless? Um, So what I argue is that You know, sometimes that does happen. Sometimes uh, people's minds wander and they don't know which uh, surah they just recited. But it doesn't happen regular. I mean, it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen all the time. The reason is that um, a ritual is very much like the performance of, say, a piece of music by a a pianist or a um, cello player. A cello player has not composed the notes of, say, Bach cello suites, but we would never say that this cello player, uh, practicing every single day, at some point the uh, piece he plays becomes rote. On the contrary, we say that he or she gains such expertise that uh, he becomes present. His particular praying be, uh, playing becomes present in that piece. So we make a distinction between this player or that player playing exactly the same pieces. What I argue is that this happens also in ritual, that you, um, you hone, you practice, you don't necessarily repeat, and that every time you stand to pray, that experience is open. It's not a closed experience, it's open to new ideas, it's open to new feelings, and uh, you can learn something different. And one other thing is that repetition does not make a ritual predictable. So uh, imagine any other performer, imagine an athlete, a swimmer, a piano player, a dancer, Each time you do a routine, you cannot know how that particular session will go. It might go well, it might go badly. You don't know where you will end up, uh, for example, emotionally at the end of it. The same thing happens with uh, namaz. When you begin to pray, you don't know where you will end up emotionally, whether you will succeed in concentrating, whether you will have ideas that haven't occurred to you before, so for, for all these reasons, uh, I argue that, uh, you know, that stereotypical idea we have of a religious person who, is, uh, you know, who does these rituals without, having, without really engaging with them, without really understanding them, uh, is false. It's a false picture. It's a convenient picture of really othering those who are religious.
1: Yeah, um, and I think that's that really is helpful and sums up so much of the wonderful threads of the book so well. Um, Nolifar, we've taken up so much of your time and I'm so grateful. And before we let you go, I wonder if you could let us know... Um, Maybe some of the things that you're working on now, um, hopefully you're taking a break and and in light of the current situation, I know a lot of us are um, juggling a lot of things, but are there projects that you had in mind before COVID hit or things that you hope to work on when things have, um, become a little bit different?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I very much like the idea of taking a break. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah I do have a, a project that I've just started to... Uh, shape in my head, and it really has to do with a, in part, it has to do with returning to the question of the translation of sacred texts, because it seems to me that when they get translated, at least in so far as the believer is concerned, the divine voice is lost. There is an absence that is produced, and one question is, whose voice is in the translated text? Uh, So I'm working on the concept of voice, and I think that semiotics, uh, whether in the strands uh, that are sort of North American or in its French uh, genealogy, is not analytically equipped to hear voices in texts because it has very secular roots. Semiotics, it seems to me, is very secular. It's based on the foundational idea of Saussure that the relation between the signifier and the signified is arbitrary. But as we know for believers, that relation is far from arbitrary. And the sacred text um, has a divinely inspired voice. So how can we analyze that voice? How can we hear the absence of it um, in translated text? This is something I've just started to... Kind of play with.
1: <laughs> oh, that sounds very exciting! I look forward to it. Um, I'm so grateful again for your time. Thank you so much for joining us, and this book is so beautiful. Um, so thank you, um, for writing it and for being on our podcast to talk about it as well.
0: Thank you, Shabana. It was lovely to talk to you, and thanks again for the invitation.
1: And that was my conversation with Dr. Nilufar Hayeri about her wonderful new book. Say What Your Longing Heart Desires, Women, Prayer, and Poetry in Iran. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you so much and stay well.